Hello, welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Annabelle Bly. And I'm Will DeFratis. This month, we are bringing you stories of Waste Not, Want Not, of academics trying out new ways to help us reduce our waste or to make better use of the things that usually get thrown away. We'll be going into a laboratory where scientists are experimenting with plants that can help extract rare metal from old mine waste. And we'll be seeing what treasures can be squeezed out of a bit of old cork, as long as you use the right chemicals. And we'll find out why lots of us aren't very good at not being wasteful, even when we say we care about the environment. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast if you're interested in hearing a bit more about how the anthill operates. We'll be joined by the guy that makes sure we don't have any adverts interrupting the show to tell you about things like drag and drop tools or the latest in mattress technology. But hold up, before we get to all that, let's get the dirty stuff out of the way. Now, no one likes rubbish, right? We've all retched, I'm sure, as we carry out a mouldy, smelly rubbish bag with oozing, weird, brownie-orange liquid. And much as we all know that we should be recycling more and reusing our junk in new ways, I'm sure there's some kind of psychological barrier there. Once it's in the bin, we really don't want to see our rubbish or smell it ever again. So I found somebody who could tell us a bit more about where this rising feeling of disgust comes from. Turns out it's actually down to evolution and something that we all share. It's called the yuck factor. The yuck factor is a term that can be traced back to bioethic debates in the 1990s to describe a moral argument that's based on a sort of intuitive or aversive emotional reaction rather than one that's based on reason or rationality. And another way to describe it is is an appeal to disgust. Primary purpose of disgust uh, is to help us avoid disease. So it's the emotional component of what is often described as the behavioural immune system. But it also plays a role in our in our sexual and moral judgments. That's Philip Powell, a research fellow at the Institute for Economic Analysis of Decision Making at the University of Sheffield. He studies how the yuck factor, this emotion of disgust, affects our decision making. The first thing to say is that disgust works quite well in helping us regulate our behaviour most of the time. For example, by encouraging us not to eat, you know, spoiled food that can make us unwell. But it's a blunt automatic tool for helping us make decisions. It gives us a quick and instinctive answer on how to behave, but it's evolved as an overly conservative response, so it often gets things wrong. So, long before we knew that bacteria caused disease, we had this emotion of disgust to help us navigate the natural world. As Phil explains. The way it works is it's better for us to presume something is going to make us unwell and not eat it than to do the opposite and uh, eat it and then find out that actually we were wrong and it wasn't safe to consume. So we can see how that would have played out over evolutionary time. Uh, People that were a bit more conservative would have been more likely to survive and pass on their genes. And it works for other systems and other emotions as well. You know, the analogy can be made to fear. So the tiger in the bushes example, where if we're on the savannas and we hear a noise behind us, it's better for us to assume that it's a predator and get ready to run uh, than it is to assume that it's an innocuous noise and to stay there and be eaten. But this conservatism is unnecessary in the modern world. Most of the time today, disgust acts as an irrational, automatic barrier to environmentally friendly choices that we could be making. For example, our primitive selves are hardwired not to want to eat funny-shaped or imperfect-looking fruits and vegetables. We also don't like the sound of drinking water that's recycled from sewage. 
So what you see there is a disconnect between things that are rationally okay for us to consume, but have certain attributes that trigger a, a primitive and automatic disgust response. For things like atypically shaped fruits and vegetables, part of the reason that they would elicit a, an intuitive disgust response is because we engage in a degree of um, sexual selection and we look for things that appear to us to be of a good genetic quality. And these things are often symmetrical and not atypically shaped. No, don't worry, we're not getting Freudian about our fruit and veg buying habits. This goes back to our evolutionary past. You basically need to think about how these, these emotions evolved. So sex is a disgusting behaviour, and we only do it because we have to, to, to reproduce, essentially. So it's a trade-off between not engaging in sexual behaviour, which would be best because it would expose us to less uh, sources of threat, like pathogen sources uh, and diseases that can come through engaging in close contact activity and also being able to reproduce. And we know that there's negative outcomes of, of reproducing with in an evolutionary sense mates that are not evolutionary fit. So, you know, that, that maybe don't have signs of being a good mate. So they're not symmetrical. They're a bit atypical and things like that. And so we develop triggers to, to spot things that look a bit unusual because atypical responses can be indicators of things like disease also. So if you look at a uh, fruit and vegetable, it's no uh, coincidence that we've come to prefer symmetrical ship-shaped fruits and vegetables and products. It's because atypical shapes are associated with things that are not good for us. It's pretty absurd when you think about the problem of food waste. The world wastes 1.6 billion tonnes of food every year. If you stack that into a standard 20 cubic metre skip, it would fill 80 million of them. That's enough to reach all the way to the moon and encircle it once. The problem can't just be evolutionary. Part of the problem these days is that we have a lot of choice, so we can choose to have the perfectly sterilised, symmetrical fruit. And that's when we talked about discuss changing over time, that is, that is something that's changed. Mass production of, uh, of food and consumerism has increased hugely. So people have a choice of what to buy, and the consumer drives to a certain extent, what um, suppliers tend to offer for sale. Seeing as disgust seems to be such a powerful emotion that has huge sway over how we act, we wanted to find out how malleable it is. The good news, says Phil, is that when we're young, we have a pretty high tolerance of disgusting things. Disgust emotions are not necessarily evident in very young children, and they, they'd learn and model from the culture that they're in. So in terms of change over time, disgust can change through cultures over generations by new behaviours being adopted and passed down to successive generations. Phil says you can see this in the way that little children don't mind playing with their poo or eating insects in the garden until they're told off for doing so by their parents. But the bad news is that when disgust does develop, we're pretty much stuck with it. This is sort of part and parcel with the idea that you get increasingly conservative as you get older. So studies that have looked at unlearning previously acquired disgust responses, uh, such as the work of Bummi Latunji in the States and his colleagues, have found that it's more resistant to change than other emotions like fear. Nonetheless, there are two main approaches to overcoming this yuck factor. Aside from getting people while they're young, that is. 
So the first, which is, is quite common, is, is you, you actually try to reduce the disgust people feel by, you know, I sometimes refer to it as masking. So you try to hide or reconstitute the product so it doesn't contain disgust cues. So there are companies that are trying to incorporate insect-based foods into the UK supply chain. Instead of trying to sell roasted crickets, they'll try and market protein bars that are derived from insects, and they won't contain pictures of them on the packaging. It's important to remove what Phil calls the visual cues, and also be careful with the way that you describe things. So for recycled water, a recent experiment on this found that people were much more willing to use and to pay more for the same product that was described as recycled water versus something that was described as treated wastewater. This second approach involves something psychologists call reappraising your responses. This is basically where you consciously try to change your emotional response to something instead of going with your gut reaction. It requires us to question our disgust. Do we not want to buy a piece of fruit because it's gone off and will make us ill? Or are we being overly conservative thanks to evolution? In which case we should ignore those rising feelings of disgust. So the key thing there is it might not be how much disgust someone instinctively feels that matters, but how they then go on to interpret it. The most basic way you can try and teach people to deal with these yuck reactions is to teach them about what they actually mean and where they came from. How about we give this reappraisal business a go with one of the examples Phil threw out? How would you feel about medicines that are reclaimed from human sewage? I'm talking about paracetamol that is taken from human sewage, reconstituted, treated, and then made safe for reconsumption. It's not something that's currently being done, but Phil says it could be, and perhaps should be. Now, rationally, when it's safe for someone to reconsume that, there should be no rational argument for people not to consume it. However, the, the sort of automatic disgust response that is associated with that will stop people from, you know, being willing to use uh, reclaimed medicines in that way. So what do you think? Could you come round to the idea of recycled medicine? Of course, a lot of this comes down to how much you actually need something. The odd adage, beggars can't be choosers, goes a long way when it comes to how wasteful we are, or how much we're willing to recycle things. You know, I thought I had a pretty strong stomach before I talked to Phil. But if I was going to pop a paracetamol that's been through the sewage system, I'd need to put the image of that pill and where it came from very far from my mind. I, I couldn't care less. I mean, what's that stat about tap water has been through your body? However many times I bring on the poo pill, I'm completely fine with that. Um, <laughs> go for it. So we've got these psychological barriers, fine, which I'm sure yeah, we can we can get over. But obviously to get recycling going, there's a lot of scientific barriers we need to pass as well. And there are many thousands of scientists around the world trying out new ways of reusing things we've traditionally thrown away. Uh, just over the past year or two, for instance, I've spoken to some researchers uh, generating renewable energy from leftover coffee beans, um, some engineers who figured out how to make a bus run off human poo. Yeah, there's loads of stuff going on. We're going to bring you two stories about researchers using cutting-edge techniques to eat something useful out of big piles of waste material. First, to the world of precious metals. Now, mining is a massive business that gives us lots of important stuff, of course, but it also gives us these inevitable huge piles of rubble beside a hole in the ground. To a mining company, this is, this is waste. That's what they define it as. But this rubble can contain small amounts of incredibly useful and valuable metals. 
These can be hard to extract manually, and it's also pretty dangerous work. So up until now, this metal was simply going to waste, and in some cases, polluting the local water supply. But scientists are working on a way to extract this valuable stuff from the big piles of rubble left outside the mines, and it's all down to the power of plants. Holly Squire has a story. Hi, it's Holly from The Conversation. So, I've just arrived at the University of York's Biology Centre, and I'm here to meet Liz Rylett, because she's been working out how certain plants can actually take up high levels of metals from soil or water so that they can then be harvested and processed, and the metals can be extracted and potentially reused. And I'm hoping that Liz will be able to explain a bit more about how the process works and maybe even let me see some of those precious plants. So this is the Centre for Novel Agricultural Products. We do a lot of molecular biology. This is a branch of biology that looks at the structure and processes of living cells. Uh, And then I come in here with my sacks of mine waste tailings and my bundles of straw and and there's dust everywhere. So it sounds like quite dirty work. It can be quite dirty, yeah. We've been in trouble a few times told to to clean up the dust. Liz explains that at this stage the team have done a lot of pot-based studies. These are basically what they sound like. Studies with potted plants which are done in labs. And these studies involve the plants being grown in what Liz calls the mine tailings, which are essentially the materials that are left over after the mining has taken place. Now, this material is also known as mine dumps, comb dumps, slimes, tails, leach residue or slickens, all words which I think help to create a pretty vivid picture of just what this material actually looks like. So far, the team at York have done a lot of work on a really little plant called Arrhodopsis, which Liz calls the lab rat of the plant world. This is because scientists know a lot about its genetics and it's really easy to grow. And Liz and her team are using Arrhodopsis to help them understand just how plants take up metals from a biological point of view. At this stage, the team are specifically looking at palladium, which is a pretty rare silvery white metal and more than half of the supply of palladium is used in catalytic converters in our cars or any vehicle on the road. These convert as much as 90% of the harmful gases in exhaust, so hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide and nitrogen dioxide, into less harmful substances. Palladium is also used in electronics, dentistry and medicine, among other things, making it a pretty useful metal. But like all natural resources, there's only so much of it left under our feet. And once it's gone, it's gone for good. Making the work that Liz and her team are doing pretty important. So these, these are the plant growth rooms that we have up here, just the, the walking lab. So we're able to grow Arabidopsis. I've got a little, I've got a few of them here. I can show you just how small they are. They're tiny little plants. Um, I guess the best description is that they're like a, a miniature oilseed rape. That people have seen. So the flowers are lovely, delicate white. But pretty as it might be, because Arrhodopsis is so tiny, it can't actually be grown on mine tailings. So instead, the team needs something much bigger, much more robust, and much faster so growing. Delicate. Yes, you can absolutely see that, that this isn't going to work as a, as a robust plant out on, on the, in the environment there. But um, you can equally see that. They're really small and we can, get, yeah. we can get hundreds and hundreds in here and we can study all sorts of different genetic traits very readily and it's right next to the laboratory, so mm. it's, it's, it, they're a beautiful little plant to work on. I can take you down to the glass houses now? Yeah, that sounds great. So where do you get the metals from? 
Right, so we can buy the metal... On the walk to the glasshouses, Liz explains where the metal they use in the testing actually comes from. She also tells me that the mine tailings they are using for their experiments are from a mine in British Columbia in Canada, which the university there collects and then sends to Liz in the post. So we've just entered the first of eight greenhouses. It's a really bright sunny day and the area is just filled with this amazing sort of uh, yellowy light. Um, from the outside, these greenhouses look pretty standard, but on the inside, it's a whole different story. They are filled with all the latest technology and equipment to give these plants and experiments the best chances of survival. This is where we grow a lot of the Aristopsis plants. Um, we have fantastic horticultural stuff and it's, it's really important because as you can see the plants are really green and healthy and we don't want anything interfering with, with our experiments such as you know, pests or diseases which could then influence our results. And obviously that must be quite a problem in here, sort of yes. having that level of control. It's a big problem trying to, trying to keep everything disease free and they, they do a fantastic job but, but it's imperative that, that the material is, is, is clean. So we're able to come down here and have all of these uh, lab coats and, and of, our, of our routines to try and reduce pathogens. And then uh, we'll come down here and we'll take samples from the plants which then go back up to the laboratories and we'll look at the levels of metal. We've got some lovely instruments upstairs that can work out how much metal is in there and we can also look at how the plants are growing. We can take the DNA out of these plants as well and use that to try and identify the genetic components that we, we think or try and tease those apart and work out what's involved in, in the palladium, palladium uptake story. So. Yeah, it's, it's just where it all starts with these little Arabidopsis. So they're taking everything they've learned from Arabidopsis and applying that to bigger and faster growing plants. This includes willow and miscanthus, which is a bit like a type of grass. And that's already been grown in the UK and used as a biomass crop. Now, these are plants that are already very robust and resilient. They can also stand being waterlogged, they're fast growing, don't need much fertiliser, making them a pretty resilient plant and perfect for the job of uptaking palladium at disused mine sites. From here, Liz tells me, once they've found the genetic basis for palladium uptake, they'll be able to tweak it using synthetic biology and improve it to create what I like to call a super plant but what Liz likes to call... Artificial hyperaccumulator. So there are plants Ooh, that... that's a very technical name. <laughs> I think it sounds wonderful. There are plants that naturally hyperaccumulate. Hyperaccumulator, for those not in the know, is the technical name for what we've been talking about. Plants capable of growing in soils with very high concentrations of metals, which can then absorb this metal through their roots and then concentrate it in extremely high levels in their tissues. There are no known palladium or, or gold hyperaccumulators, but, but the precedent's there. Plants, we should be able to develop plants that, that can take that out. And so that's what I'd like to do, an artificial hyperaccumulator for palladium. And then why, why not go on and, and all the different metals that you want, the whole periodic table, and have a, a plant for each? Because when you look at all the different wastes, for example, uh, bottom ash waste from furnaces, you're, you're faced with a, a really difficult environmental problem. You have lots of different metals all mixed up together in quite a toxic ash. If you can develop plants that will grow on this stuff and selectively pull out and concentrate the different metals, then, I mean, that's your problem solved. I love this idea that children in the future might, as well as being taught the periodic table, the plant that goes with each element as well. well it's amazing. Why not? Yeah, yeah, I like that. This looks a bit like rocket as well, doesn't it? It does. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's in the brassicaceae, so it's, um, yeah, it's got that kind of crispy edge to it. Um, but I have tasted it, and it's fairly bland, I'm afraid. Oh, you so. can eat it? 
I wouldn't eat these oh, right, ones. Right, okay. <laughs> but you, you can eat the, uh, the, the non-GM ones, yes, and it, it doesn't really add anything to a, a salad palate, <laughs> I'm afraid. Holly Squire there talking to the University of York's Liz Rylett, uh, and I hope she went somewhere nice for lunch after all that. From waste converting plants, we're switching now to forestry, which has a massive waste problem of its own. At the moment, most of the leftover wood is used as a low-grade fuel or in binding materials such as cement. Yet hidden inside bits of old bark or even the cork from your wine bottle, there are other useful materials to be found if you put the right chemicals to use. Michael Parker found out more in our second report on what scientists are doing to upcycle waste. Pop the cork, drink the wine, then recycle the bottle. But what about the cork? A lot of our waste goes to landfill because we just don't have the processes to recycle it. Cork is one example. However, researchers are working on ways to make better use of all this material. I called up one of them, Kevin Morgan, a research fellow on the European project Renew, or Resource Innovation Network for European Waste. It's based at Queen's University in Belfast. Cork, you know, it's an everyday uh, domestic product. It's very good at keeping moisture out. And the reason for that is it has a waxy coating on it, and that's a chemical known as suberin, which is a huge molecule um, and doesn't break down and therefore doesn't cause cork to break down naturally. Cork cannot go into composting, so it was ending up in landfill or being used for crafts and things like that. Cork is one of many types of plant waste that aren't effectively recycled. 60% of felled timber is left to rot in the forest, and the same proportion when sent for processing as furniture is wasted as offcuts and sawdust. Most goes to landfill, or is burnt. That's a pretty poor return. So the trick is to apply a bit of creative chemistry, and so turn cork and wood cuttings into all sorts of more interesting and more valuable things. If you could break down natsuberin, as well as the other large chemicals within cork, and that occur in wood, and those chemicals are lignin and cellulose. If you could break those down to more useful chemicals, there would be great potential in that and value-added products. So the project was focused on what was known as valorization of wood biomass and cork. And basically that's just the technical term for upcycling, I suppose. You know, you're recycling, but to a higher value use. I suppose it's what the MTV generation could call pimp my junk. And the results are impressive. The types of chemicals we can get out can be used as fuels and plastics uh, for flavourings and detergents and even pharmaceutical additives and fragrances. So these things are highly sought after in a wide range of industries. Kevin explained how the chemistry works. Well, the first thing that we would do would be to mill up the the wood, the cork or the bark into a fine powder and that just makes it easier to do the chemistry on it. So we use a, a small mill for that and just basically cut up the wood into the sawdust really and from there we put it into a reactor vessel and we heat it up and there's a pressure in there as well so it's the high temperature and high pressure with a catalyst that helps to break down the large chemical compounds into the more useful ones. What comes out of the reactor initially was what we would consider an oil. It's the, all these chemicals together and you know that could be used as a fuel but then through chromatography which is 
it's how all these things can be separated out into the pure substances. We're able then to isolate each of the chemicals individually. The range of chemicals extracted from the process include those used in the production of skin creams, shampoos and detergents, polyester, metal extraction, fuels and even vanilla flavouring. Vanilla naturally comes from orchids. I don't know if you know that or not. And there's a high demand on that. And therefore, uh, having an alternative source is definitely sought after. In fact, since the price of natural vanilla extract has rocketed from $25 to $240 a kilo, there's a big market for cheaper synthetic vanilla flavouring like this. And it's extraordinary to think such a wide range of substances can come from a cork. I think it it shows you the complexity of the chemistry that's within the molecules within wood because they're huge structures. If you consider it like it's the wood's DNA, it's like our human DNA is made up of lots of smaller chemicals as well. Uh, The wood's DNA is made up of all these other chemicals that, you know, you just break the bonds in the right place and you're releasing, uh, liberating these useful compounds. So what's the catch? Is this an expensive process? Obviously you need high temperature and high pressure, so there is a cost there, but I mean, in terms of industrial processes, 200 degrees Celsius and 40 bar pressure are not that extreme. Then the separation can be costly as well, because obviously you need solvents and materials to help to separate out all the chemicals. I think it's an issue of scale at this point, and I think when you're looking in the UK, it's not that long since we started moving away from landfill towards more recycling in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's a culture that we need to change more uh, and encourage more people to recycle. In other words, it's all part of the big move towards a circular economy, one where one man's treasure is another man's trash. And if you want to be a bit dramatic about it, it's alchemy of a sort. We may not yet be spinning lead into gold, but turning cork into vanilla is a good start. Michael Parker there, talking to Kevin Morgan at Queen's University in Belfast. Reduce, reuse, recycle, I want to say it again. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. That's the mantra of waste reduction. So use less stuff, reuse the stuff that you do use so that it lasts longer. And when you really don't need it anymore, recycle it so that it's converted into another reusable product or material. These same principles are at the heart of something called the circular economy. Right now, the economy is what academics call linear. Stuff is made, it is used, and then it's thrown away, often ending up in landfill. So, for example, you buy a washing machine, use it for a few years until it breaks, and then, instead of getting it fixed, you chuck it and buy a new one, because it's easier and it's also cheaper to do so. This is how much of our economy in the West is set up. Sadly, this isn't so good for the environment. So the idea of a more circular economy is gaining currency. Before you give that item the boot, stop, look around you and take time to think. To find out more about it, I spoke to Anna Mestra. She's a researcher at the Centre for Sustainable Consumption at Nottingham Trent University. 
She told me how the circular economy can majorly reduce the amount of waste we produce. If we change this idea, this linear idea for a circular idea, we actually don't think about waste. We think that in the end of this linear system, there's no actually an end. So this waste is actually a resource, a resource that can be reused and reused and reused and reused, ideally in an infinite way. If not, it should go optimally to the biosphere by biodegradability or decomposition. Now this requires a massive rethink of the way that most products we use every day are manufactured and used. If you think in a product, the way it's developed, it's like a life of a person. There's a lot of phases, like the production or before the production, the selection of materials and the processes and the types of energy that you use to produce that specific product. Then there's the transportation, then there's the packaging. So there's lots of different ways of making the economy more circular. Some of them can be a bit counterintuitive. Take plastics, for example. Typically, in terms of environment, we have an idea that plastics are not good, right? But we can have a different view on that. If we extend the use of life of a plastic, actually what we will highlight in terms of performance is the durability and the longevity of the resource. Plastics are often seen as the bogeyman of the waste world. They can take centuries to decompose, potentially leaking pollutants into the soil and water in the process. But the long life of plastic can be a virtue if we design products so that they actually last longer instead of constantly wanting to upgrade to newer models. On the other hand, if we do want to live in a world where we upgrade, say, our mobile phones every two years, don't make those phones from a material that will end up sitting in landfill for millennia. If we actually need to design a product that shouldn't last long, then we adopt a different type of strategy. For instance, the one that I call a bio-base. Basically, the consideration, for instance, of bio-based materials from the beginning of the process. So these bio-based materials are biodegradable. And there's been huge amounts of research into replacing existing plastics with biodegradable versions known as biopolymers. Natural rubber is a biopolymer or polymers made from corn, for instance. So they, they have as raw material biological ingredients. So meaning they don't need to last long. They can live short lives, but when they finish their lifetime, they can go back to the biosphere with uh, the less impacts as possible in terms of emissions. So far, the use of biopolymers is limited to the packaging industry. A pretty good place to start. As we know, uh, um, packaging materials last very short. It's sometimes just the time of packing the products, putting it in a supermarket, then going to a home. So a material doesn't need to last 100 years for such a short cycle. But this mentality could be applied to more advanced products. Even a consumer probably knows that we'll change a mobile phone in two years' time. You still think that you want quality in terms of longevity, right? 
we have the technological uh, options available more and more. They are being a bit slow in coming to the market, also because of this consumer side. What actually the consumer is prepared to receive. And therein lies the rub. Consumers. We're a fickle bunch. And we're the ones who are buying all this stuff that we're not very good at reusing or recycling. And that's even when we think we care about the environment. To try and understand why this is the case, I called up Jeff Beatty. On a pretty scrunchy line, I'm afraid. He's a professor of psychology at Edge Hill University and has spent years researching why people's behaviour doesn't match up with what they say they believe. Psychologists call it the value-action gap. Some of his recent research shows this really clearly. With the help of one of the UK's biggest supermarkets, he studied how much attention shoppers paid to carbon footprint labels on packaging. They did an experiment where they moved these labels to a prominent position on the front of products and then tracked people's eye movements, so where they looked and how long they spent examining things like the price, the brand and how green the product was when they were considering what to buy. Of course, they're interested in brand, they're interested in price, they're interested in value. Not so much interested in carbon footprint, except in very, very specific cases. So it looks as if this is something we often don't attend to. And this was very frustrating for people who had introduced carbon labels, because, of course, nutritional labels have worked very well with other kinds of uh, food products. For Jeff, the issue is similar to what our Yuck Factor guy, Phil Powell, was saying at the beginning of the podcast. It's all to do with our emotions. That's why nutritional information and things like fat content has a bigger impact on people. We say we care about the environment, but our actions don't often reflect this. Jeff puts it down to our brain having two operating systems, something that was theorized by the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman uh, wrote about this notion of system one and system two, that we've got two separate cognitive systems, one which is very fast and automatic and unconscious, and that's system one, one which is slower, more conscious, more reflective, and that's system two. And the problem with human beings is that we all think that system two is what governs most of our behaviour. And unfortunately, in many situations, system one is the one that really operates. So in his research into people's consumption habits, Jeff has found that what we buy is really down to habit. Most people are governed by system one, and don't spend much time reflecting on what they're putting in their shopping trolley. They spend five or six seconds choosing between products, and if they're at all stressed or under any pressure, their automatic system, that's system one, takes over. Of course, the alternative is to try and make people more consciously aware of everything they're doing. They have to kind of slow down system one, because system one is a kind of workaholic, which is working away very quick, very automatic, and make people much more aware that they have really to interfere with these habitual responses in order to get time to think, to make the rational choice. And of course, the rational choice isn't consume, consume, consume. It's something quite different to that. Because we all know we can't keep on with the kind of carbon footprint that many people show in their everyday life. We know that rationally. We know that when we sit down and think about it, we have to make sure that that now impinges on our everyday behaviour. Slowing down the way we do things is, of course, easier said than done. Failing that, we've got to change our habitual thought processes. This is where advertising has a big role to play. Adverts tap into some of our most basic human desires. Human beings are very uh, hierarchical creatures. And of course, it seems to be the case that you can temporarily elevate your status by 
you buy and how you showed off. Uh, a few years ago, I, I did some kind of analysis of heart rate monitors on, on individuals who were who were shopaholics, you know, buying and buying and buying, trying to work out where the excitement from the buying came from. And of course, where it comes from is when they go to their peers and their family and show off when they were what they've just purchased. You know, there's a real kind of high from that. So we are aware of how other people react to this, and, and we know that when we've gotten in this fashion, you know, our status within the group is temporarily changed. Jeff found something similar in that recent study of people's supermarket shopping habits. When people were choosing between the branded luxury products, eco-products and value products, their decisions were heavily influenced by whether or not they had company. When others were present, they were much more likely to choose the branded product that everyone would recognise. Yeah, it was the case that a proportion of the participants did think about carbon footprint, typically only when they were alone, when they had that time to reflect. When they were with other people, these more social processes took over, they were more distracted by these other you know, social signaling functions of consumption. They were more interested in popular brands, luxury brands, all those kind of things. So basically, if we can make it cool to reduce waste, then people's buying habits should reflect this. Of course, businesses have a role to play too. Not just by having clearly visible carbon footprint labels and stocking imperfectly shaped fruit and vegetables. There's room for bigger innovation. Let's go back to this idea of making a biodegradable mobile phone that only lasts for two years. Now, one of the problems with this is that, at the point of purchase, people don't like the idea of forking out so much money for a product that's not going to last. And businesses don't want to market something that's not going to sell. Anna Mestra, the sustainable design researcher from Nottingham Trent, mentioned one idea that can make this more appealing to people and a business model that supports it. Let's assume that there's a decision from a specific mobile phone company to introduce in the market a very fast, degradable mobile phone so that the product has two years of life. What kind of relationship, business relationship, this company can actually make with the consumer to create a loyalty? Let's imagine a service that every two years there's a new phone, which actually you already know that don't last long, but you know that you can go back to this company and you can have access to the new model. And by this, you sustain a very long-term commercial relationship with a, with a user. This way, people don't feel funny about buying a phone they know will only last for two years. And companies will feel more confident about selling something that's advertised as having a short lifespan. So there's lots of ways that we can make the economy more circular. It's not just about reusing the same things over and over again. It stretches back to the design process factoring in the materials we make things from and bearing in mind how long we want them to last. Right now we gotta do it before it's too late There's only so much that this planet can take So reduce, reuse, recycle Thanks for that, Annabelle. Now, that's it for this episode on Waste Not, Want Not. But before we go, we've got a special guest joining us in the studio here. 
Max Sandry, hello, Chief Executive of The Conversation, which is home of the Anthill and who Annabelle and I work for. He's our boss. Hello, Max. Hello, Will and Annabelle. Hi, Max. Welcome to the studio. Could you just explain to those of our listeners who may not know already what is special about The Conversation? Well, thank you, Annabelle. So The Conversation, amongst other things, is one of the only news organisations in the UK that has charitable status. Uh, We have a slightly unique operating model in that every article we publish is a collaboration between an academic and a journalist. Uh, We believe that journalists are excellent at communicating and academics are very knowledgeable. So in an ideal world, when you pair them together, uh, you produce something that's both evidence-based and hopefully enjoyable to read. And if all this kind of great stuff is available for free online, uh, who's ultimately paying for it? Good question. Um, So our funding comes from a number of sources. Uh, The lion's share comes from universities. So we have 73 universities in the UK and Europe who fund the conversation. Uh, And this is then topped up by money from a number of foundations and trusts. And that's why we don't hear any adverts on on the anthill or see any on, on the conversation. Absolutely. And you mentioned we're a charity, so does that mean that people out there can donate to us as well? Yes, it does. And uh, we'd love it if you would. It's very simple to donate. All you need to do is go to our website and along the top of the site, you should be able to see a banner saying donate and follow the instructions. Great. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Max. Thank you very much. So that really is all we've got time for. We'll be back next month when we'll be looking at the topic of misremembering and why there are some things people don't want us to remember. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. If you've enjoyed listening, please tell your friends about us. And could we also ask you just another cheeky favour? So the inaugural British Podcasting Awards are going to be announced soon. And we would love it if you could nominate us for their listeners' favourite award. So go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. And if you want to vote for us, type in The Ant Hill, obviously. That's britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.